Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It is very nice to be here and not recognize most of you. When you visit a church plant after having last been there a year prior, it's always encouraging to not know most of the people there. So I'm very encouraged to be here. As Ben mentioned, I'm uh, from Moncton. I uh, currently pastor a, a multi-point charge out in the country called the Bass River Pastoral Charge, beautiful old historic buildings. Where the first row of graves outside of the door of each of the three congregations uh, has the same last names as all the members of the congregation currently, and they all say born in Scotland. <laughs> I have a day job where I'm a professor of, uh, in a business school where I teach sales and marketing, which is uh, a perfect fit for somebody who's been a church planter, right? This psalm that we're reading, that we just heard read this morning, is a psalm of repentance. We're going to talk about repentance for the next few minutes, and really repentance is one of those weird church words that we use all of the time. Before I distract you any further, yes, I know I'm wearing jeans and tennis shoes. I uh, realized when we got here that I left my wingtip sitting by the door, so rather than wear tennis shoes, and uh, gray trousers, I just put on my jeans and tennis shoes. I'm just saying that now so you can stop looking at it, trying to figure out. <laughs> I tell my business students, you know, Mary Kay, the famous uh, businesswoman who really revolutionized the direct marketing industry with her makeup business, uh, she had a saying that you were dressed up. She, when you were dressed up, she'd say you were dressed to the shoes. I am not dressed to the shoes this morning. Now that I've repented of that, let's talk about what repentance actually means. 
It's one of those church words that we use so often, and we think we have a vague idea of what it means. It means to be really, really sorry, right? Uh, but I want us to understand this morning that repentance, as David is demonstrating it for us in Psalm 51, is much more than feeling really, really sorry. It includes getting to the point in your life where you can look at your own sins unblinkingly, unflinchingly, and be horrified. You're like a Lady Macbeth, just constantly scrubbing, 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 knowing that those spots will never go away. In this psalm, David speaks eloquently and beautifully, and it's a beautifully sung, as we have many times, I'm sure, of his sins. But the sins that he's repenting of are recorded for us in great detail back in the book of 2 Samuel. If you take a few minutes this afternoon to read chapter 11 and 12, you will get a glimpse of just how deep David's sense of guilt and shame, and indeed horror at what he had done. Let me set the context for us before we look at what David said, and I'm going to take a couple of minutes to do that. It's a little bit longer scriptural introduction, but I think it's important for us to have in our minds what is happening. Chapter 11 and 12 describe for us a time of warfare. In the ancient Near East, at this time, in the late Bronze Age, warfare was a seasonal activity. Once the crops were planted and the able-bodied men were then free until harvest to do something else. And at this time, the something else was go to war. Israel is at war with the Ammonites, and this is not a new conflict. This is an ancient conflict. David's position as king of Israel, in fact, Israel as the United Kingdom under a king owes its existence to this war. Generations earlier, the king of the Ammonites had come up against Israel and continually defeated them piecemeal, city by city, clan by clan. And when a, a group would surrender to them, it was their practice to gouge out the right eye of all of the men, making them less adept at fighting against them in the future. To resist resulted in death. To surrender resulted in partial blindness. It was Saul who, who rallied the, the militia of the various scattered tribes of Israel together to come and to fight against the Ammonites and so unite Israel into a nation with a king like the other nations. So war with Ammon has deep cultural, political, and historic significance. But the significance goes back much further than this because this is one half of the grandchildren of Lot and his daughters. The Ammonites and the Moabites are the descendants of Lot and his daughters. This is a, a nation born in deep sexual brokenness and sin. It is a nation which is dedicated to worshiping a goddess of fertility. It's a sexually, essentially a sex cult. You can become richer and more powerful by having unrestrained sexual license at certain festivals. I once had a seminary professor explaining 
uh, to the, us as a class about uh, this, the, the religions of the ancient Near East and how deeply embedded this sexual, ritualized sexual immorality was in it. And one of the students said, can you imagine if there was a religion like that today? And he said, there is. <laughs> You just have to know that the great sacrifice to maintain your future prosperity is to occasionally kill a child. If you combine those two things, you understand the view of most Canadians today when it comes to religion. So this is a, a cruel people, a historic enemy, and Nahash the king it was a cruel, cruel man. In fact, David owes his position... And his fame in Israel, remember, to defeating the champion of the king of Gath, the Philistines, on the other side of Israel. And the, Goliath comes from a clan of giants whose historic land had been dispossessed by the Ammonites and had moved to the coast. And then, so Saul fights on one side and then Saul fights on the other side and David comes and joins it. So this is deeply, deeply significant warfare. And so this war, that David is at home in his new capital city, which he has built up high on the hill, turning a former village into a growing capital with a, with a growing palace complex. And what's important to know is in the geography of Jerusalem at this time, surrounding the palace of David are the houses of his top generals. The men who fought with him when it all seemed lost. His mighty men. The guys who slept in the caves with him, who fought for years with him in the, among the uh, Philistines, who came with him and saw him not lift his hand against God's anointed Saul when he had the chance to seize the throne for himself. One of those men was leading in David's armies, and his wife was at home. And so when David is, as the custom is, to standing on the rooftop in the evening and he looks over, not a long distance, this is right next door, and he sees the wife of his brother. Remember the line that Shakespeare put in the mouth of Henry V, for no man is so base as this day who finds with me that he will be my brother. These mighty men of David's, this few, this happy few, this band of brothers, truly this is his brother and he is looking at his wife who's his sister. As his army is fighting a nation born of incest, he's looking on his sister. He sins with Bathsheba. And for this morning, I'm not going to go into the nature of the sin and uh, the, the, the relationship between them. I really want to get ahead to the repentance. But he does sin. He compounds his sin by calling Uriah home to cover for what David has done, hoping he'll sleep with his wife. But Uriah won't because he's in a holy war. He's taken a holy vow. It tells us in, in 2 Samuel that the Ark of the Covenant and the priest are in the battle. 
And so the army has taken vows, and Uriah, true to his vow, will not go home to his wife. His faithfulness and righteousness mocking David's own sin. And so David sends him with the sealed orders that result in his death, the murder of his own brother, the man who stood with him all these years, whose wife he has defiled. The child is born some months later, and the child falls sick. And for seven days, David fasted. It says that he laid down in front of the child, and he would eat nor drink, and he only prayed and called out to God to restore the child. But the child died. This brings us to David years later and his repentance for all of the things that have happened in the past. The first thing I want us to see is sin. The second thing I want us to see is confession. And the third thing is reconciliation and forgiveness. Sin, David says, is in his very nature. He says that he's born in sin, and in this he's referring to our nature as descendants of Adam. He says, in sin my mother conceived me. He said, I was born in sin. In other places he says, I'm a man of sin. He acknowledges that sin is a part of what it means to be human. That there's a part of him that's broken. And as you might, if you're going to write a pop song today, you might say, you were born this way. David knows that this is who he is. The Apostle Paul says when he would do good, sin was present with him. And David is expressing the same thing. He said, it's in my nature. The echoes of the sins of Lot with his daughters is, I think, an intentional context for the sin of David. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who he defiled. And David says, my sin is not just who I am, I can't help it. He says, it's what I did. David acknowledges that his sin is a series of actions. It's not the temptation that David is referring to, it's the actions that flowed from it. I'm sure you all I've read your larger catechism. And when you read the questions and answers on the Ten Commandments, you'll notice there's a repetitive question. What sins are forbidden in each of the commandments? And under that, there's always a long paragraph that says, anything that tends toward. David's sin was the first step that he took that tended toward the final sins. His sin was an act. It's not just something that's inside of him. It's not just an attitude. It's not just a worldview or a philosophy. David says, it's things which I actually did. It's words that I spoke. It's things that I wrote down. It's orders that I gave. It's when I told my servants to go get Bathsheba. It's when I brought her to me. It's when I sent the orders to kill my brother. When I did all of these things, 
I sinned. Yielding to the temptation is the sin. And sin has real consequences in this life. We sometimes tend to think when we talk at church, uh, uh, we say, oh, I talked about sin, and we think that this is something spiritual. You know, it maybe happens in our head. Maybe it happens somewhere in the atmosphere between us and God. Uh, something to do with disappointing God, you know, kind of like, you know, a dad who's, who, who's sad to come home and find out you didn't do the dishes while he was out. No. Sin ended lives. David's sin killed people. David's sin ruined relationships. It broke families apart. It shattered relationships. And these consequences are judicial. There's an actual judgment by God which says this is wrong and it has consequences. And it also is relational. David's relationship, of course, with Uriah and his wife is severely altered by this. Uriah is dead. But can you imagine being the other of David's leading military men, those other houses that surround him, that are built right up against each other? Can you imagine how they felt about the guy they had followed through the wilderness all those years? Knowing that if he took a whim, he could take your wife from you and kill you so that you could never object. Sin, David says, had taken away his joy and it replaced it with sadness. In 2 Samuel, we see that David described as laying on the ground weeping for seven days, for a whole week. His joy is gone and it's not just that he's feeling a kind of, you know, Blase, he is overcome with sorrow. Next, I want us to think about confession. Confession is the cure to David's status as a sinner. He appeals to God, we see in our text in Psalm 51, in this beautiful poetry that he's writing, he appeals to God on the basis of his relationship with God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's your never-ending, always-present love. It indicates to us as a love of a close family relationship, a love that can never be broken. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3. For I know my transgression and they are ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He appeals to God's love as a child of God. As a person who has a right to expect that God because of his love will show mercy. David's sin haunts him. It's, it's like a ghost following him around. He closes his eyes and he sees the moment he signed the death warrant for Uriah. 
He's falling asleep, and he remembers the first time he forced Bathsheba to come to him. David is haunted by his sin. David's sin is constantly on his mind. And it is not just that he's reflecting back on it, like, oh, back, you know, in old days, I, 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 there were some chances I could have done some things better and I didn't do it. No, no, David is horrified by what he's done. See, this is the essence of true confession on the part of David, is he has to reach the point where his joy has been completely pushed out of his life by his sorrow, and he's haunted by the memories of what he has done. And it's like closing your eyes and seeing that person in front of you and knowing what you did. And he has nothing. The consequences I guess I'm going to be referring to Shakespeare one more time, but it's Macbeth, right? It's Macbeth. Here's a ghost that he just can't live with himself. He can't. He now sees his actions not in the passion of the moment, not in the urgency of hiding his shame, not in any of these things. Now he sees it for the evil that it was. This is when we talk about repentance is more than just forgiveness. A little sharp. You say something, you know, to your wife. Like I'm sure none of you ever do this, but I sometimes. I'm a little sharp, especially if driving. Maybe or maybe not this morning. And I say I'm sorry because I feel bad, right? But it's not really repentance. It's just an apology that we make so that we can carry on the social interaction. True repentance is coming to be horrified at what you did, to look into your soul with terror at what you have done and what you are capable of doing, and then still having the faith to be able to look to God and say, you have such a great loving relationship with me, I'm going to ask for mercy. That's repentance. David appeals to God on the basis of two of God's great characteristics. His love for his children and his mercy toward them. Notice how David uh, puts it. He says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing heart, spirit. David is saying that my sorrow and the pain I felt was as though my bones were broken. And notice he, he ties in this baptism language here. The purging with hyssop. 
the washing with water. This is a reference to the Old Testament baptism uh, of repentance, where the Israelites would come to the, to the temple to offer sacrifice, and then they would, in order to renew their covenant with God, the priest would take some of the blood and some of the ashes and mix it with the water, and then take a branch and dip it into it, and he would sprinkle it on them, symbolically cleansing them from their sins. When John the baptizer comes several hundred years in the future from here, as a priest, he knew all of these rituals, and when he began to baptize people, people watched what he did and said, you're a priest and you're doing a baptism and you're calling it the baptism of repentance. We recognize all that. But for something different about you, are you the Messiah? The reason they thought is because the prophet had prophesied that when Messiah comes, the baptisms will no longer be done with water that have blood and ashes, but will be done with clean water. Ezekiel says that I will sprinkle you with clean water. David is using the Old Testament language of baptism, which is a messianic prophecy to the ministry of John and Jesus, and saying this is why I'm asking for forgiveness. We have this expression in our confession that says to us at times of baptism and especially at times of temptation, we are to improve our baptisms. This is what it is. At that moment of temptation, you remember that you are Christ, that you belong to him because you are baptized in his name. And he loves you and he forgives you. And notice that it says, joy returned with the forgiveness. David's heart is filled with joy. It's taken away as the sorrow and the sadness and the sickness of spirit and body that he feels and is replaced with joy. But he's not the only one that's happy. The scripture tells us there's joy in the presence of the angels when a sinner, sinner repents. Baptism is the outward symbol of the inward repentance and forgiveness of sins. And David makes that linkage explicit here in 51. The baptism with hyssop that he refers to is the outward ceremony. But David says the outward ceremony just points us to the inward reality of what it means to be forgiven by God. To be aware of the nature of our sin and to be horrified by it. To know that sin is within us, that we are broken by it, and that our sinful acts have real consequences in our life and the lives of those around us. <clears throat> but God loves his people, and he desires to forgive them. It actually gives him joy. You know, there's one interpretation of that expression, there's joy in the presence of, angel, of the angels, which says what that means is that it's God who's rejoicing because he's the one who is surrounded by angels. That when they're in heaven, they see him filled with joy at the repentance of his people. Remember these promises at your baptism. Call out to God who is your father who promises to forgive you, 
and make a reality in your life of repentance that is outwardly symbolized in the ceremony, make it a living, breathing reality in your life. Amen. Father, for your word, we thank you. We ask that these uh, brief thoughts on this text might encourage us to follow you more closely and to trust in you. Amen.